0: Well, hello, and welcome to another episode of Patrick Problematic, The Life of the Bipolar. I'm your host, Patrick Burns. Today I've got a pretty interesting uh, guest with me. I think I've mentioned her before on the show. Uh, I'm really looking forward to hear what she has to share uh, and what we can learn from it and how that's going to help us move everybody forward. So, With that said, I'd like to introduce Dr. Jocelyn Bonner. She's involved with a nonprofit uh, called Treatment, Not Chains, and they 're addressing mental health and treatment issues in West Africa and so with that said, Dr. Bonner, would you like to introduce yourself more than I have?
1: Hello i'm happy to be here. My name is Jocelyn, and as Patrick said i 'm a retired psychiatrist. I did community mental health and private practice for many years and In retirement, I've decided to advocate for a comprehensive mental health system of care in West Africa, specifically Benin, Togo, and Ivory Coast. Treatment Not Change is an interest group, not quite yet a nonprofit, but that's a goal. And it started in 2016 with another member who, like me and uh, the few of us that are involved, had watched a New York Times video, an article, on what this founder, Gregoire Ahabonan, had done literally with nothing to complete a very widespread mental health system in West Africa. So what's special about the situation in West Africa, and I'm only speaking of French West Africa, but these problems are really worldwide. The mentally ill there are thought to be possessed or contagious. So the name Treatment Not Chains comes from a circumstance where frequently people with mental illness are shunned from their communities, they're cast out, they wander the streets, often homeless, and unfortunately often they're chained up. This could be in somebody's yard or a cave, uh, an abandoned structure. And oftentimes too, you know, the family is unaware that these are treatable mental health illnesses. That's not the culture there. So one goal of treatment not chains is to bring an awareness that these are medical illnesses just like hypertension or diabetes and that if we can bring in modern treatment which would include therapy and medications, trauma-informed counseling, uh, many of these patients go back to their families, they go back to work, Uh, the goal is for them to become self-sufficient. So that's where the name Treatment Not Change relates to and where This mental health treatment center called Association Saint Camille, or Saint Camille in English. Um, This is the mental health concern that we're supporting. Now, how do we advocate for them, especially from the United States? While we're only three of us, four of us, and we're the only uh, U.S. Americans involved. date, We're recruiting more people. Part of being on this podcast is to raise awareness. That's a whole uh, big part of what we're doing. Benin, Togo, Ivory Coast are low-income countries. So, you know, financial resources are important. But also the expertise. The founder, Gregoire, whom I met in January 2020 in Benin, he asked us specifically to help increase the level of expertise there. Now, how did Gregoire do this? Gregoire, by profession, was a tire repairman. No background in mental health whatsoever. He was raised in the same culture. He thought the mentally ill you know, needed to be hidden away, uh, banished, that sort of thing. So he was running a successful taxi company and other businesses he had a severe financial reversal he almost lost everything he became depressed and suicidal he contemplating he contemplated uh, overdosing but through his faith which he's a devout catholic therefore the name saint Camille, after a patron saint who helped the poor he became aware of the inhumane treatment of the people his area. At that time, that was Ivory Coast. So what he did first was he started with a small group of friends. Uh, You could call it a prayer group. And they visited people in jail, people with AIDS, Uh, just anybody that looked hungry on the street, he would approach them and gain their trust. His wife made the meals that they passed out. So we're talking about a small friendship group that has grown into about 360 employees over 30 years. So this was back in the 80s or so. And eventually, he had the idea to start a clinic. But how do you do that? He's not a psychiatrist. you know. He doesn't have loodles of money. So what he did was he got a hospital to donate some land right next to the hospital. So this would start as. We would call it a pop-up clinic. So anyway, that's how Association Saint Camille came to came to be. Eventually, uh, he opened, he founded ASC as an NGO in 19, 1991. So the other brilliant thing he did was knowing that um, you know there are few psychiatrists in these countries. They do have psychiatrists. They have one psych hospital in Benin. But with all the health care there, you have to pay privately. Everything is cash pay, regardless of what your situation is. Doctors will not treat you if you don't have the money to pay. So given that, he needed outside resources. So um, he got a group of French psychiatrists to come down from France to give consultation and to train the local providers. He did, you know, he does have local psychiatrists, but you know, m- many times they're part-time. And some of the psychiatrists at the local hospitals actually believe the same thing as the culture does that these people are possessed. So, you know, he had to find obviously people that didn't believe that and were willing to come down or serve in the indigenous communities. So the other brilliant thing he did, uh, besides getting these outside consultants and hire local psychiatrists as available, was to employ recovered patients as workers at these centers. So I would say 90%, probably more, of the employees are recovered patients. Now, these are gainful jobs, so they earn a good living for the standard. Um, and once they're recovered if you're interested in becoming a nurse he will send you to the school of public health and a nursing school in Burkina Faso so they stay there for three years and they get a nursing degree so these are the people that implicate, implement the protocols for treatment at least regarding medication that the doctors write up The other people are peer counselors often they've been in the same situation they've been chained up they've been homeless you know everybody's poor so these are people that can relate to you as a peer and they and you know they'll bring you in clean you up feed you house you Uh, once you're ready you can go into uh, rehabilitation for jobs and the goal is to return to your family now they run several inpatient hospitals and what they call relay centers which again we would probably call a pop-up clinic which could just be at a schoolyard where you just set up some tables and chairs and everyone sits quietly waiting their turn to be seen that was an amazing day when I was there we probably saw a hundred people in one day and they're all patiently waiting Um, so there's that's how it all came Currently, uh, we're hoping that an addiction center will open up in August of 2024. Uh, one thing we've learned in West Africa is, everything takes a long time, so uh, that date's aspirational, but hopefully it will open. So he recognized that, you know, there is a drug problem there, just like worldwide. But keeping people with addiction issues in with with a mental health issue often would contaminate the treatment if they, you know, smuggled in drugs or something and passed them around. So these people will have mental illness and addiction issues, but they will be treated in a separate facility. This will be the first addiction center in West Africa. So this is his vision and why we signed up once we met him and realized what he's done without the resources of a country like the United States, uh, you know, we definitely wanted to be a part of it. So, going back to Treatment Not Chains, we connected with the original uh, creator of Treatment Not Chains, and we joined up. We kind of refreshed the website and the goals, and
0: got more people
1: involved. So that's where we are today.
0: Well, okay, Jocelyn. That's uh, thank you. Uh, That was quite a bit of information (laughs) in just a short amount of time. Um, I want to apologize for any background noise everybody hears. I didn't really bother with it in the beginning uh, because it was pretty quiet. I just want to let you know that this uh, interview is actually taking place at the Erb Memorial Union here on the lovely campus at the University of Oregon. Um, Okay, now, Jocelyn, if, if I heard correctly, at least a feeling that I was getting from some of the stuff you were talking about, is not only along with some people that are medical professionals, uh, as you said, uh, you know, prescribing medications. Uh, a large amount of the nurses and staff, as you said, were uh, recovered themselves, and there was just a huge peer support group. So I know that I've talked about this in the past. I don't know if I've put it on, uh, put it out on the internet yet, but I think one of the one of the main problems with the way that a lot of mental illness is treated or looked at is, again, as I've mentioned before to people, uh, people think there's something wrong with them or they're ashamed. Uh, So with this kind of uh, approach that they're taking, it it seems like there's much more empathy involved in it uh, as opposed to just judgment and decisions uh, based on what you think is best for the patient as opposed to the patient helping. Helping figure out for themselves what they think is going to be best.
1: So I think one issue, uh, you know, with being U.S. trained, you know, we're in that dynamic of, you know, the decision maker, and I know what's best. And it's only been recently that community community mental health centers here, for example, have hired peer counselors. Um, now he did it out of a necessity because. You know there's that's the population and they're not a lot of trained people and if they are they're doing other things like at the universities or the big hospitals so and I think Gregoire again being um, having a mental illness mental condition himself opened his eyes to what was happening so he was the first one to be empathic and He's modeled this whole treatment on reducing stigma, no stigma, everyone's an equal human being, and everyone deserves the same uh, quality of care. So that's one of his driving uh, motivators. And he's gotten a lot of help through his faith. He himself was stoned. Uh, because somebody didn't want him around when he was in his condition, so he's been on the receiving end.
0: Now, now you're talking stoned as within rocks, like yes, Jesus. Was someone stoned. threw a rock at his head. Go ahead, please.
1: Um, so anyway, that's where uh, to your point of where does the empathy come from, and it starts with him, and he's um, emphasized that to the whole staff, and. This is why he would prefer that people from other countries come and see what's going on, because that that will um, diminish the judgment. And you know, when somebody chains up their child because they have epilepsy, because they treat seizures the same way, you know, he's very quick to say we don't blame the parents. You know, you don't want them to feel badly about what they've done. And a lot of times. I think they feel like it would be worse if the person just ran off into the street or the woods never to be seen again. So the only alternative they know is to chain them or restrain them in some way. Again, they don't know about counseling and medications. Now what they do know about is prayer camps. So these are hidden away. Uh, They're for pay. And the person will be chained to a log or a tree until the spirit or whatever it is that you know, they, they believe in witches if you're bewitched and all this they can re- withhold food and water you know, the intention is not for people to die there but at some point when you ask for help like you ask for a shower they consider that a sign that you're better now you know, even in my practice here I often saw people spontaneously get better without treatment. So it does happen. And, you know, the causes of that are probably unknown. But, you know, depression, bipolar anxiety, I mean, these can be on and off kind of conditions depending on what's going on. So, but the, the family, you know, this is all they know is a prayer camp or chain them up or let them go. You know, and you're not going to want to keep someone in your house if you feel like you could get the same thing from them I mean this is human nature but when Gregoire goes out and his team goes out they go out to the villages they meet, they talk non-judgment he'll just say look there's a better way let me take your family member and see what we can do He's not promising you know, a cure and all that stuff, but um, he wants to show the family a better way. And he also emphasizes with the family that the goal is for them to come back to you. you know, we're not keeping them <laughs> for life at our hospital. I mean, the goal is that they come back to you and they're accepted into, back into their community. Now, sometimes that can't happen, And some people, just like our state hospitals, some people do end up being there for, you know, maybe the rest of their life. But that's certainly not the intention. The intention is not to take them out of their family. The intention is to return them to their family. But again, that takes education. Like, well, they come out doing okay, but if you don't take your medicines or go to the counselor go to the follow-up treatment, You know, what's going to happen? We don't know. Or if you lapse into drug use. You know, same situation here. I mean, there has to be some sort of commitment to follow up, regardless of what it is. So that's kind of... I hope that gives you an overall feel of um, the treatment model there. Because Gregoire would say the first treatment is love. He's very... He's very secure and committed to that approach and then you get to whatever else because they you know these people have been abandoned. I mean what do you think of your family that's changed you up you know I mean so they're confused everybody's confused but the basic first thing is to love this person as a fellow and deserving human being. He sets that tone and his whole team sets that tone. So I think that's the value of having peers go out. You know, I saw a videotape where they were rescuing a young girl from a cave. She was literally chained to the floor of the cave with a hole. You know. So, I mean, they were obviously feeding her or else she would have starved to death. But, you know, what you can imagine what that person's life they're going to have to deal with down the road. So, not having to pay, which means you can stay as long as it takes, and having access to care and family education and support and the potential job uh, rehab treatment for a job, that's what's gonna make the difference. And this is why I'm so impressed because he does this all under one roof. Here, everything's split up. You gotta go over here for drugs, you gotta go over here for housing, you gotta go over here for food. He does it all all under one umbrella. And now he will accept payment if you can do it, like medicines, for example, for the month, the equivalent of $2. But no one's turned away for inability to pay. But he does have to make some money to to try to get to self-sufficiency because right now he's very dependent on donations from other countries. So he started a bakery. They have a farm. Um. Agriculture uh, farm. So he's always thinking of ways that they can support within and at the same time give somebody a job at the bakery or a job at the farm. You know, they have little retail stores. Um, So he's always thinking about how can we be self sufficient. And that's, you know, that's to their benefit in the long term because frankly, you know, he gets tired of asking. Westerners or Europeans for money, and donors want to know well how long is this going to go on for? You know, I mean, the goal is to stand them up to be self-sufficient. So, uh, economic enterprise is also part of what he's done.
0: Well, very good. Um, I, I do have one quick question just on the uh, how they you know the. They do they work so hard with the individual, uh, with the job training and the care and the support. Now, is there also a group of the peers or a group uh, f- uh, that works with Gregoire that uh, works with the, the family the same way to, to give the family some kind of an idea of hey, we're trying to do this and this person will be better hopefully, and they're going to come back and so, you're going to have to change some of your behaviors. Is that? Do they have somebody that helps with that?
1: Yes, they have a whole psychoeducational program, is what we would call it. Um, I know Gregor himself gives a lot of lectures, and I'm sure he's assigned that to other people because you have to go to the home where this person is going to return to. And you do have to do that work with the family. Otherwise, you know, this isn't going to work out. So I think once they learn that um, regardless of what you think about possession and all that stuff, uh, this person's <laughs> better. And, uh, you know, maybe it was prayer. Maybe it was just the course of the illness. But the thing is that to have the person return to the family and be monitored. So, again, if someone had a symptom come up, Hopefully, the family wouldn't automatically think, "Uh-oh, the witches got them again." But they'll stop, you know, think about it, and call ASC, and they will come out. Part of their, part of a lot of their work is outreach. So, you know, I think they address that pretty well. Now, what he's asked for help with is validation of the model. The peer model is approved by the World Health Organization. But telling you it works doesn't show you that it works, you know. So uh, that's one thing he's asked us to help with. Also, is with the expertise and hopefully get some research done that will validate the model. Uh, again, I think just just by on knowledge of what's happening over the 30 years, I think all of us believe that it's helpful. But we don't have the data. Specifically, that Westerners like to see, Uh, like how many people do return to their home, how many people relapse. Uh, They treat. They have about one hundred fifty thousand outpatient visits a year in Benin alone. But again, you know, if you're if you want data, we need to we need to make that happen. He doesn't have the internal capacity to do that. You know, they're so busy, just with some. Somebody with psychosis that just walked in, you know that that just takes another layer of
0: uh, people power to get that done. Uh, well, thank you, Jocelyn. Yeah, that <laughs> one hundred and fifty thousand outpatient visits—that's quite a remarkable number uh, for how many how many residents in this this area in Bahia? I want to say
1: two million, but I need to check that.
0: Right. That's quite. That's quite a few visits, and that's yeah, yeah. quite a few visits. So. But it,
1: at any one time, fourteen thousand people in the system are in some kind of residential care. So this is the volume that we're talking about. Now, it doesn't mean they have more bipolar people or people with schizophrenia. It's the same. You know, it's the same incidence as worldwide. I think it's one percent of people worldwide have schizophrenia. So it's not that they have more. Mental illness. It's just that they have more untreated people with mental illness, and then they could be, you know, they could be ill for years before anybody before they get to any, you know, what we would call modern medical attention. Now the other thing he's done is brilliant. He's also built medical facilities and maternity facilities. There's a high maternal death rate, just like everywhere. And again, you know, I feel like he was ahead of the curve because we're just now talking about in the last 10, 15 years about integrating medical with mental health. Well, he's been doing that for a while. And again, that's another set of uh, clinics. I mean, dental, ophthalmology, OBGYN, general medicine. And again, for, to make some money, it's open to the public if you can pay. But again, if you can't pay, you're still seen. So those are the components that I think uh, have made this work and why we on the U.S. American side with Treatment Not Chains have been willing to support them.
0: Well, that's awesome. Um, and you're right, building a lot of those clinics, because I don't really think you want to be running an OBGYN clinic in a pop-up clinic. <laughs> so. Uh, you know, I think we'd like to uh, end the uh, conversation for today with that. I do plan on hoping that we get back together uh, and you know continue this. I know we'll both come up with more ideas. I'm certainly hoping to hear from people that are listening if they've got comments and questions. Uh, and again, the, the name of the organization is called Treatment, Not Chains. You can reach those at treatmentnotchains.org. and. Please take a look, and if there's, if you're interested or have any way that you could help, uh, in any way, shape, or form, that would be really wonderful. It sounds like these people are doing some really amazing work under difficult situations. So, um, want to go along with that? Hey, please listen. You know, check out the website, Patrick Problematic. Uh, please click that subscribe button. I do have my links now up for uh, the platforms. I just have a couple left to load up: Apple, Spotify. Yeah, and I just have a couple more of those to get up. Apple's giving me a real headache uh, I'm on YouTube already. And then I, I think Spotify, but I'm not sure if I clicked that one yet. Uh, so anyway, please uh, get back to us. And thank you all for listening. It's been wonderful. Till next time, it's Patrick Problematic.